In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin, but this week at home in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. This week, the standoff over the Northern Ireland Protocol deepens. David Frost continues to suggest it's unsustainable and hints that the UK will take, quote, whatever steps are necessary to ensure it's acceptable to unionists. On that point, we'll hear from Edwin Poots in his first broadcast interview since becoming the new DUP leader. How will he approach the protocol and will he show that pragmatic streak for which he's noted? Or has unionist opposition, which critics say has been aided and abetted by Boris Johnson's government, now gone beyond the point at which there can be any possible compromise? We'll look at what precisely the UK is asking for on the protocol and whether or not the EU can grant it. We'll also hear from Simon Coveney on where the Irish government stands and we'll examine in detail the UK's letter to the European Commission in response to the EU's legal proceedings. Is it a case of the dog ate my homework? But first, Tony, let's hear from Edwin Poots, as we outlined there just in the introduction to the podcast, his first broadcast interview with our colleague featuring again this week, Vincent Kearney, Northern Editor of RTE. Here's Edwin Poots speaking to him, and Vincent asked him about the protocol. Just set out for us your position on the protocol. What precisely is it? Well, for us in Northern Ireland, the protocol has a damaging impact on every single person in Northern Ireland as a consequence of all of the barriers that have been created in trade. So once the grace period ends, because that's the important bit to focus on, uh, we're looking at 15,000 checks per week, and that's going to drive up the cost of food to many households uh, which are on low income. Uh, we're then looking at 98% of our medical devices and medicines coming from Great Britain. That is going to cause havoc within our health service. So it doesn't matter whether it's the Amazon parcel that you're waiting for, or indeed the paracetamol uh, in your cupboard, and everything in between. That's the impact the protocol's having, and therefore we need, we need to remove the protocol, and we need to get a workable system uh, to ensure that the integrity of a single market is kept, and that is something which we are prepared to work with others on. Do you mean remove the protocol as entirely, or do you mean flexibilities and mitigations within the protocol? No, I don't mean flexibilities and mitigations, because flexibilities and mitigations don't cut it. This protocol, in how it has created, is just hugely damaging to all of the people of Northern Ireland. Now, the Republic of Ireland is a co-guarantor of the Belfast Agreement. The protocol damages the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. The European Union um, invested great time and saying that they were uh, wanting to help Northern Ireland um, over its period of of, of membership. Now that um, we have been uh, removed um, from the European Union through the the Brexit vote, I don't think that's really suitable for the European Union to be harming the people of Northern Ireland who they sought to help. We saw riots on our streets. 
We've saw community tensions um, risen as a consequence of this. We want to defuse that. As a unionist leader, I want to defuse that situation, but I can't do that on my own. I need help from the UK government, from the European Union, and indeed for a bit of common sense coming from the Irish government that things have went far too far, they've done real damage, and they need to draw back from the position that they've adopted. To date, clearly, I mean, the UK, the EU and the Irish government have all said that the protocol is staying. Uh, there's been talk about flexibilities. Um, can you genuinely hope to overturn a protocol that everyone else, sovereign governments, are saying is here to stay? Well, here's the problem. If the protocol is to be implemented and rigorously implemented, as some people desire, um, we go back to this 15,000 checks per week. And who's going to do those 15,000 checks? It's 600 people required to do it. 200 vets. Those vets, for example, do not exist. We can't train vets in less than five years. So it is actually impossible for the Northern Ireland Executive to deliver the protocol as it's demanded. So what is Europe going to do? They're going to starve the people of Northern Ireland? Are they going to deny them of medicines? Because the protocol is not implementable. Therefore, whether people like it or whether people don't like it, the protocol cannot be implemented um, as it has been established and therefore it needs to be removed. Lord Frost himself has said the protocol isn't sustainable in its current form, but there are technical discussions ongoing at trying to find flexibilities. I mean, you seem to be absolutely ruling out any kind of change to the protocol. Uh, what I am not ruling out is the protection of the single market. And I get it that the European Union wants to protect the single market. And I will engage with um, you know, the British government, the Irish government, the European Union in assisting them to ensure that that protection happens. But whenever we have more checks taking place in the port of Belfast than we have in the port of Rotterdam, which is the biggest port in Europe, whenever we have um, far more checks uh, between Belfast um, and uh, Great Britain than we have on all of the eastern borders of uh, the European Union, is anybody seriously suggesting that goods coming from Great Britain are of a, a lesser standard in terms of the European Union single market than Moldova, Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, Albania? I don't think so. So this is a political thing and therefore it can be fixed. We need politicians to recognise the mistake that was made and that that mistake needs to be rectified. Is fixing it a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland? No. No, there'll be no borders on, on, on the island of Ireland. As a unionist, I don't want a border on the island of Ireland and I would hope that the Irish government would recognise that they do not need to be imposing barriers between Great Britain and Northern Ireland's trade. Turn of the Irish government, North South Ministerial Media, uh, you pulled out a tool in recently, uh, a British-Irish uh, intergovernmental conference uh, meeting in June. Will the DUP be taking part in that meeting? If I can give you a bit of context, I was a minister who decided to push ahead with the radiotherapy unit at the Altmagelvin Hospital to ensure people in Donegal and the North West would all receive the cancer care that they needed. As a minister, who agreed uh, with James Riley to move cardi paediatric cardiac surgery operations to Dublin uh, to ensure that children would receive that on the island of Ireland and not have to fly uh, because we weren't able to do it in Belfast. So I'm a minister who has a record of working north-south. I will say this, our relationships have never been worse and I don't want it to be that way. But it can only be remedied and fixed by the Irish government actually reflecting on what has happened and helping us to fix the problem that has been created. So the meeting is scheduled in June. Will your party be at that meeting? We will be meeting the Irish government in advance of that.
and having discussions about how we fix the problem. But they have created real harm to the Belfast Agreement because there's three strands to the Belfast Agreement. There's the internal issues in Northern Ireland, there's the north-south issues and the east-west issues. And there has been fundamental damage done to the Belfast Agreement on the east-west side. We need to resolve that. The Irish government have had a major role in the damage that has been done to that relationship and consequently they have a major role in the fixing of that. You say you'll be beating the Irish government in advance. Uh, Taoiseach Michael Martin, Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, both issue statements congratulating you on your win and saying they look forward to engaging with you. Has there been any direct contact as yet between yourself and the Irish government or is there contact planned at some point in the near future? There hasn't been contact but I'm very open um, to that contact and I would be very open to meeting with them uh, very quickly because I see that the Irish government have an important role uh, in identifying the problems that have been uh, brought about as a result of, result of the protocol, how we can work with the Irish government in ensuring that we can protect the single market uh, without having a border in the island of Ireland because that's not something that I, as a unionist, am interested in trying to create. You said in a couple of cases that the Northern Protocol breaches and undermines a Good Friday Agreement. The Irish government made it clear that any failure to attempt that meeting in June would be a clear breach of obligations on the Good Friday Agreement. So you, you seem to want to avoid answering the question straight in terms of whether or not you see yourself at that meeting in June. I, I, can't, I can't guarantee what, what our position will be, um, but we need to get to a much better position in advance of that meeting than we're currently in. North-South relationships have never been as bad. And I say that as a unionist who doesn't want that to be the situation. I want good relations uh, with my neighbours in the Irish Republic. Um, I have good relationships with my neighbours here. We need to fix the problem that exists there. And we really need politicians uh, in the Republic of Ireland to step up to the plate, recognise that there's an issue, recognise that, th that uh, some of them played a very significant part in creating that issue and seek to identify a solution to it. You said earlier you're a union leader who wants to defuse tensions, uh, particularly coming into the marching season, clearly. Uh, are you concerned that, that defenses, uh, or tensions could rise further if this issue isn't resolved in the next few weeks? Are well, there any orange signals that it might be resolved? Northern Ireland is a great big country and we want to get on with each other. But there is a volatility that exists there and if we allow these things to fester, we are creating the, the, the circumstances where that volatil volatility might manifest itself in a way that none of us want to see. So, you know, as responsible politicians, we need to step up to the plate and ensure we remove those things which causes discord and dissent. And I'm up for that. I need other people to work with me to deliver. OK, that was Edwin Poots speaking on Monday. On Tuesday, the Iranian foreign minister was in Dublin meeting Simon Coveney at Farm Lee in the Phoenix Park. And shortly after that, I interviewed Simon Coveney on a number of issues, but asked him about what his reaction was to Edwin Poots saying the protocol was unimplementable. Here's what he had to say. Well, look, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually meeting Edwin uh, uh, as soon as, as we can to discuss a whole range of issues. But one of them, of course will be the protocol. I know that the protocol for many unionists is a real problem uh, politically uh, and they're very concerned about the practical consequences of the implementation of the protocol as well. Um, and many unionists mightn't realise it but you know, I'm spending a lot of time speaking to the European Commission about how the protocol can be implemented in a way uh, that is more acceptable uh, to the unionist community in particular. Um, more flexibility 
uh, more pragmatism where possible. Uh, and in Mara Sefcovic, who's the, the EU negotiator here in the Commission, we do have someone who's genuinely listening. Um, so I'm looking forward to meeting Edwin Poots to discuss with him his perspectives on the protocol. Uh, he has to understand that we have a perspective as well, as do many other people in Northern Ireland, because I don't think there are any easy alternatives uh, to the protocol. But that doesn't mean that we can't work with Edwin Poots uh, and other leaders in Northern Ireland to try and find flexible and pragmatic ways uh, of making uh, this protocol work a lot better than it currently does. Well, that was Simon Coveney talking about pragmatic and flexible approaches to the protocol. The problem we're in at the moment, Colm, is that the, the British government appear, or at least according to the Irish government and people here in Brussels, the British government appear to have hardened their narrative on the protocol. Don't forget there are negotiations ongoing at technical level. They've been fairly intense, almost a daily basis, looking at ways to make the pro protocol more flexible and to have a pragmatic approach to it. The problem is that Dublin and Brussels now believe that the, the United Kingdom want the protocol to be, to be changed much more sub sub substantively and in short order uh, rapidly. And before David Frost made that appearance on Monday at the House of Commons European Scrutiny Committee, he wrote uh, an article for the Mail on Sunday, which again made several accusations against the European Union, claiming that the EU had threatened to cut off the electricity supply to Jersey, which is not actually correct. It was one French minister threatened that in an interview. Um, but also a you know a, an ongoing critique at the European Commission simply not being flexible, being too orthodox, not understanding unionists, and there's the the UK have kind of synthesised this argument now, which says that if unionists are not happy, therefore the cross community balance that is enabled by the Good Friday Agreement no longer works. Therefore, the Good Friday Agreement is under threat and, the, and essentially what they're saying in a roundabout way is the protocol at the moment, the way the EU is implementing it, is uh, at odds and contrary to the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, they've kind of landed on a definitive position uh, along those lines. And beyond that, there was briefing over the weekends by British, two British newspapers saying that the government had set July the 12th, of course, the, the peak of the orange marching season, as a deadline for the EU to deliver rapid change to its position on how it both implements the protocol and interprets the protocol. So that's why I think the Irish government are getting alarmed in the sense that they believe that the, the UK is now shifting to a much more radical, absolutist interpretation of what the protocol should do. And, um, and and there is a kind of a hint that, you know, we could have violence this summer if things are not sorted out. We can hear now from David Frost at that European Scrutiny Committee on Monday. Yeah, there is also a real-life timetable in Northern Ireland. Um, 
you know, coronavirus restrictions are, are coming to an end. Um, we all know that the, the late spring and summer in Northern Ireland can sometimes be, be turbulent, some days are significant in that. And we have to take that, you know, that reality into into account. You know, we'll always be willing to kind of talk about anything whenever, but we also have a responsibility to, you know, try and avoid further deterioration and difficulties in the, the situation. And that, you know, that, that obviously is a possibility uh, as we go into the spring and summer. Well, is it fair to infer from what you've just said that you would regard the 12th of July as an important date? So I, I would like to feel that we are, uh, we'll be making progress with the EU, uh, you know, in good time before that date. If we were to find solutions, I think it is helpful if people can see that there are solutions uh, available sooner rather than later. I think that that is true, yeah. Well, that was David Frost at the European Scrutiny Committee on Monday talking about, uh, in somewhat coded terms, the prospect of turbulence in Northern Ireland in the spring and summer. And we can hear now again from Simon Coveney about how he believes the protocol could be fixed in a big, substantial way, one that would go beyond the kind of tinkering and fixes and flexibilities that both sides are working at now at technical level. And so we do need to work together to find a way of implementing the protocol in a way that is consistent with the commitments in that protocol, but in a way that limits the disruption for people who have genuine concerns in Northern Ireland uh, in terms of the impact on their lives of the protocol. But I believe we can do that within the confines of the protocol itself in terms of flexibility and pragmatism. And I think that Mara Sefcovic, Vice President Sefcovic, working with Lord Frost, need to find a way of doing that, and I believe on the EU side certainly they can. For example, we could reduce the number of checks in ports in Belfast and in Larne by 80% if the British government decided that they were willing to, to agree with the EU a common approach to standards in relation to veterinary practices and sanitary and phytosanitary standards on food. That option is there within the confines of the protocol. And it could dramatically reduce the number of checks linked to the protocol that many people are upset about. So there is a way forward here, but it has to be on the basis of partnership, not uh, a British government trying to outmaneuver the EU politically in the context of articles in the Financial Times uh, or in the Spectator uh, or, in the, or in other newspapers. Um, so this is a delicate, delicate issue for the peace process in Ireland, for relationships. Many unionists in Northern Ireland have very, very strong feelings in relation to the protocol. Uh, and so, you know, as ever, France um, uh, uh, works with us in solidarity, understands the complexity of this island and its history. Uh, and I hope that we will be able to find a way through the committees that have been set up to do that, uh, to resolve the outstanding issues on the protocol that can avoid unilateral action by the British government, which in my view would be a disaster for relationships, for trust, and for politics. Um, you know, we need a future where the EU and the UK work together in partnership. We have so much in common. And whether it's fishing or whether it's the protocol, the United Kingdom have made commitments and they need to follow through on those commitments and we will help them to do that in a way 
that, that is politically, I hope, saleable for the British government. But let's not entertain uh, the idea of unilaterally breaking your word effectively uh, because the politics of this uh, uh, has become divisive and difficult. It's got to be a solution based on partnership. Well, that was Simon Coveney there talking about the idea of an SPS agreement or a veterinary agreement between the EU and UK. Now, the EU has seen this as a catch-all solution for some time that the UK would align with EU food safety rules and animal health rules and that would then, as Simon Coveney said, get rid of a huge amount of the checks and controls that are proving so difficult and will prove so difficult um, for traders in Northern Ireland, certainly supermarkets. We can hear again now from David Frost. This time he was talking to the House of Lords European Affairs Committee on Tuesday about this idea of aligning with EU food safety rules. It, it's obviously been a, a fundamental uh, issue, a principle that we, we don't dynamically align with, with EU rules in, in this or any other area. And that's that's not for ideological reasons. It's because, um, as you know, we, we need to keep control over these rules if we're to do trade agreements with, with other third countries. They're, they're so central to that. We, we can't outsource them. Um, um, We do hope that uh, some of these agreements might be reached relatively soon. So I don't think the temporary alignment issue uh, proposition really solves the problem. I think we'll confront the real problem soon enough uh, either way. Uh, You know, what what we would like to see is an equivalence arrangement, um, which reflects the fact that we both operate the high food standards, which are, you know, in most areas, extremely similar. Um, and that should enable reductions in paperwork and checks. And the EU obviously has agreed such such processes with uh, New Zealand and with Canada. Um, there are such provisions in uh, a number, I think half a dozen or so other recent free trade agreements that the EU has reached, unfortunately not with us. And they, they didn't want to include an equivalence mechanism last year. But if they would like to, uh, we'd be very happy to pick up negotiations again. That was David Frost there speaking to the House of Lords, Tony, just at the, their European Affairs Committee. Just, I suppose, a pretty basic explanation, if you would. What's the difference between alignment and equivalence? And in the case of the UK, is there a stronger case for equivalence, given that their food safety rules at the moment are still pretty much the EU's rules? The question of alignment column is essentially adopting uh, all of the EU's rules on animal health and food safety. Now, those are rules which are... Um, which have evolved over a 20 or 30 year period. They are signed up to, up to by all member states, but also countries like Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Norway, Austria, sorry, uh, Norway, Iceland. Uh, and th- all of those countries, including the 27 member states and those other EEA countries, form part of what's called the EU's SPS zone. So every country... Uh, in that zone applies uniform food safety and animal health rules and therefore there are no barriers to trade uh, or to trading uh, food products with animal ingredients across borders. There are about a hundred pieces of legislation 
which underpin that SPS zone. And also there is what they call the precautionary principle, uh, which basically says that uh, food safety should be about zero risk. And if there is any risk at all, then you apply the precautionary principle. And this is kind of baked into all EU food safety rules. And it was uh, confirmed by the European Court of Justice in a case involving GMOs uh, in 2017. So So the message from Brussels is, you know, Food safety is something that the EU takes very seriously. There have been food scandals in the past. It is underpinned by a really big, important body of EU law. It's underpinned as well by the jurisprudence of the European Court of Justice. Uh, and what what the UK is kind of asking the EU to do is to turn a blind eye to that huge body of law and jurisprudence and adopt a, a risk-based approach uh, to uh, food safety. In other words, the UK is saying, look, you know, the food that we produce going into Northern Ireland, it doesn't really pose an existential risk to the safety of consumers in the EU or the, or the integrity of the single market. The EU's response to that is, look, you know, we decide what our, you know, risk-based strategy is and our sense of risk is not just what we kind of think on a given day, it is baked in and and hardwired into EU legislation that not only 27 member states sign up to, but the other members of the EU's SPS zone, so Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Norway and Iceland. So to get back to the other point about equivalence, equivalence, according to David Frost, means that both sides recognise that they, they both uphold high standards in food safety and animal health. And in, on that basis, you look at the outcome, uh, not not the kind of the, the law that underpins it. Um, and the, the UK will often refer to New Zealand uh, because the EU does have an equivalence relationship and arrangement with New Zealand. The problem from the EU side on that score is that whereas alignment covers a hundred pieces of legislation. The equivalence agreement with New Zealand only covers 14 pieces of EU law. Um, furthermore, um, people say that you you have to have individual arrangements for individual categories of food and these have to be negotiated for years, because if you're not simply just saying we will align with your rules, then you need to find some other way of registering that things are safe and food can be traded freely across the Irish Sea. The other argument that the the EU makes is that the, the volumes of food going from New Zealand to the EU are only 10% of the volumes of food going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Uh, also, when you talk about equivalence arrangements for New Zealand exports, you're talking mainly about lamb and 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 milk and dairy that will go on to be processed somewhere else. Whereas the range of food going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland is is enormous. It's a huge diversity of of food, all of which would have, you know, its own particular rules if it was treated uh, as 
you know, food going from one EU member state to another. So for that reason as well, the the EU is very reluctant to get into equivalence. And the final reason they say is that the UK has signalled that it's going to diverge from EU food safety rules and EU SPS standards. They did that before the trade negotiations and they did it during the trade negotiations. So for that reason, the EU is saying, look, you know, you've said you're going to diverge. We don't know when or by how much. So we're simply not going to take a chance at giving you a kind of blanket access to, to, to British food into Northern Ireland. I mean, that that's why this is such a difficult issue. That's why both sides are so far apart on this. And the problem is that it is food safety is the biggest headache of the Northern Ireland Protocol because you have all these huge consignments of of food going from a supermarket distribution centre in the UK across the Irish Sea into uh, UK branches of, say, Sainsbury's, Asda and so on. As you were saying there, Tony, the... The UK intends to diverge from European regulations for the purposes of trade agreements. We heard David Frost saying that, you know, the European way of doing things that had built up over 50 years of UK membership was problematic and needed to be eradicated over time. I mean, there was a proposal, I suppose, from the European end of things of having the temporary arrangement of remaining aligned until such time as the two sides weren't aligned anymore and then revisiting it at that point. Is there a short period of time where that could pertain, given that the UK at the moment is having its own internal debate about a trade deal with Australia in which access for Australian agricultural goods would form a large part of it if what's purported to be David Frost's view is believed, in other words, a large amount of access for Australian agricultural goods as opposed to Michael Gove, who believes that maybe that's not such a great idea. Yeah, so the the whole question about uh, alignment is the extent to which that would tie the UK into the EU's regulatory orbit for food safety and whether or not that would militate against the UK striking its own free trade deals around the world. And of course, the big one in Brexit, Folklore has been a UK-US free trade agreement and because the EU bans things like uh, GMOs uh, and hormone-injected beef and chlorinated chicken and so on, um, if 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 the UK was somehow tied to EU food safety regulations, then that would really hamper a free trade agreement with uh, the US. The view in Brussels is that it might take four, five, six years before a US-UK free trade agreement gets concluded. In the meantime, why not align with EU food safety rules and therefore take away the big burden of the protocol at a stroke, eliminating, as Simon Coveney said, 80% of the checks and controls Um Now, the argument from the UK has been initially that, no, no, we can't do that because we are sovereign. There's a sovereignist streak running through Boris Johnson's cabinet. And that was the reason why they wouldn't do that. But more recently, as I think we heard David Frost confirm there, um, the view is that if they are going to negotiate free trade agreements with other third parties around the world, then they need to be in charge of their own rules Uh, And obviously, this is in the context, as you say, of the Australian free trade agreement. The other objection to this idea from the UK is that uh, 
you're simply kicking the can down the road, uh, be it four or five years. And then it gets difficult for the UK to pull out of the EU's food safety orbit because then that immediately hardens the border on the Irish Sea. So, I mean, you constantly get back into this seesaw tension. You you take one route uh, to to, uh, cater for one constituency and you create a a problem somewhere else. Um, So that's why we hear the UK saying that there is a big gap between both sides on this SPS issue. And until that gap is solved, then we are in a difficult situation. And that's and the fact that the UK has been saying that the EU needs to take a radically different approach quickly because the marching season is coming up, then that fuels tension again, especially in Dublin, that the UK is only now seeing this through the lens of unionism uh, and not the lens of, well, this is all because of Brexit going back to the beginning and you signed up to an international treaty, you have to abide by it. We'll try and find ways to soften that. As Boris Johnson said, sandpapering the the barnacles or sandpapering the hull of the boat. Um, the, the, The fear in Dublin now is that the UK wants to go much beyond sandpapering and they want to radically rewrite the protocol Uh, or else. Uh, And we don't know what that or else is, but they've certainly hinted that they have left the option open of triggering Article 16. Uh, And interestingly, the UK last week sent a letter to the European Commission, which was its response to the European Commission's legal action. And in that letter, the UK raised the uh, notion of force majeure in how they would approach the protocol. In other words... You've been in the country where French is a widely spoken language. <laughs> Why don't you explain that concept to us? I was amazed at how quickly uh, social media picked up on this concept and everyone on Twitter seemed to know exactly what it meant. But it essentially means that because of circumstances beyond your control or circumstances that were unforeseen, you can be absolved of the obligations of a legal contract. Now, the letter that the UK sent made several references to force majeure in relation to the pandemic and the fact that because of the pandemic, it was difficult, if not impossible, for the UK to put in place all of the preparations for the protocol. In other words, hiring staff, setting up administrative systems, building um, border control posts in Larne and Belfast, uh, and therefore they were within their legal rights to be forgiven, if you like, uh, from uh, the fact that the the protocol wasn't implemented. The problem is that the Commission took legal action not because the protocol wasn't implemented, but because the UK decided on its own bat to take unilateral action, extending the grace period uh, and uh, lifting some other obligations of the protocol. Um, So the, the fact that the UK is now talking about force majeure as an, as an excuse, if you like, for them not fulfilling their obligations under the protocol. And the letter does say that the, the UK will, if necessary, uh, refer to force majeure, uh, meaning to me that suggests that they keep that as an option in the future. 
um, to say, look, this is beyond our control. These were it, it was unforeseen how the EU would impl- force us to implement this terrible protocol. So therefore, that's our that that's our kind of way of of taking a, a sharp turn away from the obligations of the protocol. Um, so that's why people are nervous about where this is going to go, especially since you have this big fundamental gap between what the EU says it can do within the limits of its legal body and all of those hundred SPS pieces of legislation and the jurisprudence of the Court of Justice and what the UK wants the EU to do, which is really to take an extremely flexible approach uh, to food safety, to 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 use a risk-based approach whereby you, you take a kind of a pragmatic view of, well, are sausages or mints or uh, pies or chilled prepared meals really going to pose a big threat to the single market? Uh, to which the EU says, well, of course, they may, they may not today, but the moment that uh, the world knows that we've abandoned our rule book, then we can't guarantee the effect that that's going to have in the future. So that does seem to me like a big problematic gap between both sides, and there isn't a huge amount of time uh, to to bridge that gap. Just sorry to go back to the Houses of Parliament, Tony, on Monday as well. This whole language around the the 12th of July, David Frost floated it as a deadline. In fact, Simon Coveney floated it as a deadline as well. But I suppose where people might feel that those kind of deadlines get a bit more real was on Monday when there was a member of the Loyalist Communities Council, Joel Keyes, speaking in the Northern Ireland Committee in the Houses of Parliament in London. He was decidedly not within the spirit of the Belfast Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, in some of his remarks. Yes, so Joel Keyes uh, was invited by the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, uh, the chairman, Simon Hoare, who's a Conservative MP, uh, as part of a delegation of the Loyalist Communities Council, which had already met um, David Frost in Belfast uh, last week. Um, But we can hear now from Joel Keyes about the question of whether or not loyalist anger against the protocol may result in violence. You, you can't. You kind of have to have that willingness to back up what you say and back up what you believe in and fight for what you believe in. And and I do, again, I want to emphasise: I don't think we're anywhere near that point at the minute. I think that um, the political process is one that we all have to use and take advantage of. But Mr. Keys, you know, you've just the phrase "at the minute." So, do mm-hmm. you think that there might be a time? if the protocol becomes embedded and is deemed by the EU and Westminster to be working, is that the time when violence is the answer? I, I'm not sure if and when violence will be the answer. I'm just saying that I wouldn't sort of rule it off the table. The strength of feeling, Tony, obviously there's the principle of being less British than the rest of the UK. That's That's one thing driving it. But Last Thursday or Friday, I think it was, it was uh, an article appeared in the pages of the London Times, written by the diplomatic uh, correspondent Oliver Wright, saying that there was a problem with cancer drugs getting into Northern Ireland or being used in Northern Ireland. And when it gets to, I suppose, people's health and an existential threat on a very individual level, you can see why feelings might run high, even apart from the constitutional issue. And it was something that David Frost also made mention of in his submission to, I think, the House of Lords as well. Uh, there is, there is uh, 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 the the risk 
of uh, gaps opening up in regulation between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Um, the important thing is to make sure the protocol operates in a in a sort of balanced and and pragmatic way, which takes account of the you know the real conditions. And you know we saw an example of this over the weekend of the kind of problems that can be generated, whereby uh, you know it was clear, despite um, I think a little bit of um, sort of dust thrown in the eyes by the EU, it is clear that um, they're asserting their right to regulate. Uh, cancer drugs in Northern Ireland, uh, uh, rather than the UK doing that, and that is that that sort of thing is going to be a problem if we can't find pragmatic ways through it that protects our uh, UK national health service. You've been having a look at this. What is the real story behind it? Because it it became the subject of quite a granular argument on social media during the week as to whether or not the European Medicines Agency was really going to prevent the use of an early-stage lung cancer drug in Northern Ireland. Yeah, so this story also appeared in the newsletter. um, And I think one of the key points about this is the timing, uh, because it was alluded to indirectly by Boris Johnson during his meeting with Michal Martin, the Taoiseach in Chequers that Friday. Now, just to, to kind of explain the context here, Northern Ireland is under the protocol in the single market for goods, and that includes medicines. Now, if you have medicines being sold into the EU single market and within the EU single market, then those medicines are required to be approved by the European Medicines Agency. You need to have uh, a thing called batch testing, which is uh, quality control. And you need to have an authorised holder. So in other words, the distributor of the drugs or the retailer needs to be located in a member state uh, so that if there's a problem with a particular drug, if there's a side effect or something goes wrong, then the seller can be traced there's, there's batch testing or quality control to make sure everything's fine. And everything is kind of monitored and traced back to the European Medicines Agency. And that's how it works. Now, when the UK was a member, uh, the UK would produce uh, medicines with English language labels. And they would be tr- distributed then to Cyprus, Malta and Ireland. And of course, throughout the UK. And that was all fine because the UK was a member, the authorised holder of the drugs were in the UK and everything was fine. Now, with the pro- with Brexit uh, and the protocol, it means that the drugs that are being sent from Great Britain into Northern Ireland um, will, will have to be ultimately approved by the European Medicines Agency because they, they can then circulate uh, throughout the EU. And the authorised holder will also have to be in Northern Ireland or in, a, in an EU member state. Uh, the UK, of course, will have its own regulator. Uh, it's obviously working already. It's the MHRA. And this, what, what this story is about is that the, the MRA, MHRA had entered a collaboration uh, with other regulators around the world actually English-speaking regulators in the US, Canada, Australia, Singapore. And this thing, Project Orbis, is designed to fast-track new cancer drugs uh, so that they can get to patients quickly. 
Now, the, the cancer drug that we're talking about in this particular case, uh, it has a, a, a kind of pharmaceutical name, but that the marketing name is easier to pronounce. It's called Tagriso. And what the newsletter and the Times reported was that the MHRA, because of Project Orbis, had um, made a big splash announcement that they were approving Tagriso for the UK market, but that they couldn't approve it for Northern Ireland because of the protocol, because it had not yet been approved by the European Medicines Agency. Now, that's why the, the headline in the newsletter was uh, life-saving cancer drug prevented from entering Northern Ireland because of the Irish Sea border, or words to that effect. Not really. Um, and it's complicated. Uh, and there has been a lot of back and forth by um, between the European Commission and the newsletter uh, and the UK government on this. First of all, Tagriso, well, first to, to get to the, the current situation regarding the protocol, when both sides were negotiating how the protocol would be implemented last year, uh, it was recognised that this could be a major problem uh, because Northern Ireland would have to reorient its, its medical supplies away from Great Britain and to the single market. And that, that's going to take time. That's a whole new supply chain that has to be constructed. Also, there aren't that many authorised holders in Northern Ireland who have the resources and uh, the, 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 the capacity to be an authorised holder who can look after things like batch testing and quality control. So both sides agreed that there would be a grace period for a year where uh, the, U the EU made a unilateral declaration in January saying that we understand the acute problems this is causing for Northern Ireland. So EU law for pharmaceuticals does not have to apply for a full year and there will be an undisrupted supply of medicines from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. And this was also codified in a piece of legislation that appeared in the EU's official journal in January. Now, for some reason, the MHRA still decided that despite that grace period, despite that declaration and legislation from the European Union, it still wasn't going to authorise Tagriso for Northern Ireland. Now, it gets even more kind of strange because, first of all, Tegriso as a, as a drug was already operating and licensed for Northern Ireland since 2016, and it was operating and licensed in the rest of the European Union. What, what changed with this announcement by the MHRA was that Tegriso was had been approved for a, a different cohort of cancer patients, those with early onset lung cancer. Uh, and therefore, that needed to have its own license, if you like. Now, the European Commission's view of this is, first of all, we have a derogation, we have a grace period. Secondly, there is Article 5 of a 2001 directive, which allows for medicines to be approved and authorised and licensed for the EU on compassionate grounds. So, the EU, the Commission came out very quickly last Friday to say this story is entirely incorrect. Um, the newsletter uh, felt perhaps justifiably that the, the Commission hadn't fully explained why this was incorrect and it was kind of left hanging. Um, now, at that hearing that where we heard David Frost on Monday, 
Uh, his deputy, Rebecca Ellis, also told the House of Commons Scrutiny Committee that uh, the, MHRA, the MHRA could not license this drug for Northern Ireland. Um, now, the other point to make is that the EMA is on the verge of licensing this drug for that new cohort. Um, the other, another point to mention as well is that the, the the patients who are the cohort who would be entitled now to have this drug uh, are about between eight and ten people. And the final point, which makes this all even more uh, confusing, is that the British government has now acknowledged that oncologists in Northern Ireland can prescribe that drug off label. And that means that which means it, it means that although there hasn't been a formal licensing by the MHRA, they can still prescribe it. They still have the discretion, if you like, to prescribe this drug. So what what you know what it comes down to is that there are between eight and ten people in Northern Ireland who have this particular cancer uh, condition. They need this drug. They can get it from their oncologist. Uh, the MHRA had said that they couldn't license it for Northern Ireland, but it can be prescribed off license. The European Commission said absolutely not. It can be authorised. Uh, and in any case, the EMA is going to license this itself any day. So even when the grace period expires, those eight to ten people could be reasonably optimistic that there will be the commission's position is that there's no disruption now. But given what you're saying, there will be no disruption after the grace period ends for this particular drug. The 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 or do we well, know that? Well, both sides, the the at technical level again are are working very hard on this. There have been really intense, uh, reportedly difficult negotiations on the medicines issue, uh, and. Uh, it's my understanding that they will find a solution to this problem so that there isn't a sense of Northern Ireland being cut off completely from um, the, the UK medicines market. Um, we have to see the detail of whatever they're discussing and it's understood that this will form part of an overall package of arrangements on the protocol should you know, both sides get to that point. Um, but the commission is also saying, like, even if none of that was in place, there is still a directive from 2001, which has an Article 5, which says on compassionate grounds, you can uh, have access to these drugs if they are life-saving and, and if they are, are needed. Um, another somewhat ironic twist to this is that it it cuts both ways. There could be medicines that the e, that the EMA authorizes more quickly than the UK regulator. And that would mean that patients in Northern Ireland would get those medicines quicker, perhaps, than their counterparts in England, Scotland and Wales. But you can see how, you know, this is feeding into an escalating tension around the protocol. You know, a headline that says people in Northern Ireland are being starved of life-saving cancer drugs because of the Irish Sea border you know, that's certainly guaranteed to raise tensions and raise opposition. Um, and, not, and not to do down the audience of this podcast, but more people will read that headline than will hear the explanation that you've just given with all its nuanced twists and turns. Well, I mean, to be absolutely fair to the newsletter who who who, who wrote this initial story, they did seek a lot of clarification from the European Commission. I mean, they felt that the, the Commission hadn't responded uh, in detail 
and they reported uh, the fact that the UK was now saying, despite the, the issue around this, it can be uh, prescribed to patients off-label. In other words, oncologists have the discretion to prescribe this drug to those who need it. All right, Tony, so what's coming up in the, in the coming week in your diary? Well, the big thing, Colm, is there's going to be a, a, a European Council, an EU summit on Monday and Tuesday. Now, that was initially going to deal with the COVID pandemic, uh, with Russia, the Middle East. But the French government uh, at the Porto summit uh, a couple of weeks back, or I think last weekend, um, had uh, had insisted that the relationship with the UK be put on the agenda. Um, and we are going to hear some language about the Northern Ireland Protocol, about the UK needing to implement what was agreed uh, in treaty form. Um, but interestingly as well, there is a sense that, the, that EU leaders who obviously make up the European Council need to reassert the primacy of the Council in how the the, the the European Union relates to the United Kingdom. And there is a bit of a worry that the UK has been frantically trying to bilateralize the relationship uh, with other mem- individual member states when it comes to things like uh, youth mobility, uh, professional qualifications, social security. Um, and while the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, which both sides concluded last December, does provide for some bilateral arrangements between the UK and individual member states. I think leaders are now starting to worry that the UK is really starting to undermine the single market by pursuing these bilateral deals and understandings. And they want to make sure that the the EU gets back to this idea of a single, coherent, unified voice in terms of its relationship with the UK. Um, And there will be a call uh, to the European Commission to make sure that if member states are getting involved in some bilateral arrangements, say on social security, that it is done in compliance with the trade and cooperation agreement and the single market, and that the commission will then tell other member states what member state X is doing um, to make sure that uh, this is all above board. But again, it, it does reflect on the difficult relationship that the EU is going to have with the UK uh, over time. Right. And if the tone of David Frost in those committee meetings he was at in the UK Parliament during the week or anything to go by, it could be quite difficult indeed. All right. Well, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungain, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Kildare this week. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.